Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. My name is Graham Baldwin. I'm happy you're here. I hope you're having a great day wherever you're at in the world, whether you are uh, driving down the road, maybe you're headed to or from work, maybe you're headed to a speaking gig right now. That'd be pretty sweet, huh? Maybe you just wrapped up one. Maybe you're at the gym pumping iron, getting beefy on the treadmill. Uh, what else could you be doing? I don't know, doing laundry, cooking dinner, I don't, whatever you're doing, wherever you're at in life. I hope you're having a great day. Really do appreciate you tuning into the show. This is kicking off what week two of the show here. We're on episode seven, and so really excited about that. We've got a uh, had a lot of great feedback on the show so far. A lot of great people that we've been talking to. A lot of great guests. We are doing a giveaway right now, so that's one that you don't want to miss out. So basically, we're asking you to do a couple simple basic little things. All we're asking you to do is leave us a rating and review on the podcast. You can do that within iTunes. Also, we would like for you to download all the episodes of the show and then subscribe to the podcast as well. All free. It'll take you literally just a couple minutes. And uh, by doing those things, then uh, we're also going to enter you into a drawing to give away a couple of free things. We're giving away some consulting with me. We're giving away our booked and paid to speak speaker training course. I think we're giving away like a Kindle Fire and some of my favorite speaking books. A couple different giveaways there. So you can get all the details about that and how you can register for that over at podcastcontest.com. Again, that is podcastcontest.com. You're definitely going to want to stop by and check check that out. All right, so let's get into today's guest, today's story. We've got a longer episode than usual today. Normally, most episodes we do are going to be, you know, we'll shoot for like 30 to 45 minutes or so whenever we're doing interviews. Today's is longer, and let me explain who we're talking to and how this kind of came to be. So today, I'm joined by my buddy, Michael Port, and Michael is a uh, an outstanding keynote speaker. He's a uh, New York Times bestselling author, has multiple books out. I actually came across Michael many, many years ago with uh, his book, Book Yourself Solid, which is a great, great book. Really, really big fan of the book. And so that really impacted my business in a lot of ways. And then his most recent book, he's had a couple books come out since then, but his most recent book is called Steal the Show, which is just a another phenomenal book. But Michael does a uh, an event in Florida every year called Heroic Public Speaking. Heroic Public Speaking with he and his wife, Amy. Uh, he and Amy just got married uh, literally at the time they're recording here, just uh, be a couple months ago or so. A couple of weeks ago, in fact. And so uh, they do the heroic public speaking event in Florida for a couple of days in mid-February, where they teach a lot about the art of presentation and the, the uh, how to deliver a good presentation and stage performance. And so they do a great, great job at that. But one of the things that they ran into is they said they had a ton of questions about the business of speaking. How do you actually get booked? And how do you market yourself as a speaker? How do you negotiate fees? They got a lot of people wondering about that. 
And so Michael and I got to talking, and uh, we've actually decided to kind of partner up together. And so they're going to be doing heroic public speaking for three days in mid-February. Dates are going to be February 15th through the 17th, 2016, February 15th through the 17th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, all right? Beautiful, just north of Miami there. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in Fort Lauderdale, 15th, 16th, 17th of February. And then what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be coming in a day early doing a full day pre-conference day on the 14th, February 14th, the day of love. Wouldn't it be good if you and I spent that day together? So we are going to be hanging out there doing the pre-con day at, in Fort Lauderdale on February the 14th and then stick around for Heroic Public Speaking the 15th, 16th, and 17th. So that kind of brings us to what we are working on and what we've been up to. If you are interested in Heroic Public Speaking, you definitely want to check it out. It's going to be a phenomenal event. A lot of top-notch speakers that are going to be there. Uh, you can get more information by going to grantbaldwin.com slash HPS. grantbaldwin.com slash HPS for heroic public speaking. So grantbaldwin.com slash HPS. We will put that link in the show notes as well. So definitely check that out. So anyway, so Michael and I, uh, Michael also hosts a podcast called Steal the Show. And so I was going to, we were getting ready to conduct some interviews. I was going to interview him. He was going to interview me. We were just kind of going to go back to back interviews. And so we hop on Skype and he says, hey, what if we just record this all at once? And so instead of just having you ask me some questions, I ask you some questions and we do two separate episodes. Let's just do one joint, big, long episode. So that is what we did. That's what you're going to get today. So it's a little longer. It's uh, like an hour plus of he and I just got talking and talking and talking and just gabbing like a couple schoolgirls. But we go into depth and a lot of different elements and aspects of speaking, his speaking journey, his speaking career, my speaking journey, my speaking career. He talks about the art side of, of and the performance side of speaking. I talk more on the business side of it. So it's just a great collaboration, a great conversation that we have here. So definitely you're going to want to just block out some time to listen to this whole beast, all right? We also talk a little bit more about heroic public speaking, what all we're going to be covering, both in the pre-con day that I'm doing. Again, that's going to be on February the 14th, as well as the full three-day event he's doing with his wife, Amy, on February 15th, 16th, and 17th. So whether you're in Florida or not, you got, I mean, Florida in, in mid-February is going to be phenomenal anyway. I'm bringing my wife. My daughters are coming as well. We're going to have a blast. Can't wait for it. But you're definitely, you're not going to want to miss out on that. Again, you can get all the details over at grantbaldon.com slash HPS. Again, grantbaldon.com slash HPS. All right. We've given you enough context there. Let's get right into it. Oh, just so you know, also, we had a couple little technical glitches, like it, it cut out a time or two. So uh, you may catch that throughout, but we were just like, you know what? Just like in speaking, the show must go on. When there's glitches and things that happen, like you don't you don't have a chance to go back and edit it and clean it up. So like I don't know. I, th- I think we just kept recording if I remember right. So anyway, let's get right into it. Here you go. Here's my uh, interview, my conversation where we go a little bit back and forth with my buddy Michael Port. Enjoy. Welcome to Steal the Show with Michael Port. This is Michael and Oh, hey, this is not just Steal the Show, my friend. We're doing a dual episode today. This is Graham Baldwin, host of the Speaker Lab podcast, and I guess we're going to hang out together. Does that sound good? Yeah, we were going to do two hours. You interview me for an hour, then I interview you for an hour, and we thought, that's just too much work for us. So let's do it together. (laughs) Makes us sound lazy. (laughs) Oh, we are entirely lazy. Well, you know, the length of time you have to do something is the length of time it takes to do something. So let's take an hour instead of two. I like it. And then we'll release it at the same time. 
and both our audiences will get great value from it. And the reason that I originally wanted Grant to be on Steal the Show is because Grant is doing a pre-conference day at Heroic Public Speaking Live, which is in February. And this first time we've offered pre-conference day, but so many of our students are keenly interested in how to get paid and booked to speak. And of course, this is something that Grant is an expert in and that he teaches. We address it certainly in the conference and we bring in some of the biggest speakers in the business and we put them on panels and uh, they answer questions about the speaking business. But I wanted a protocol that people could use and I chose Grant because Grant is not a really famous guy with a big best-selling book, yet he's still getting paid to speak all over the world. And I thought, well, that makes him very, very relevant to the kind of people, many of the people that will be in attendance at Heroic Public Speaking Live. Because sometimes, Grant, they look at me or they look at some of the other folks who've written so many books and are on the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and all these lists, and they go, ah, but I'm not like them. So how am I going to get big money to speak? Right. And you say, mm, I think that there's a way to do it. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely that misconception there that, well, I mean, if, if I've got a New York Times bestselling book, well, of course I can get booked to speak. And so, yeah, like you kind of alluded to there, I, I think that's why this works well for you and I working together with a uh, heroic public speaking in this pre-con day that we're doing is that you don't need some massive platform and you don't need to have some massive blog and you don't need to have some big name or bald, shiny head, although those things are helpful. But uh, so in that pre-con day, we're going to be talking all about how you can get started, how you can get booked, how you can get paid to speak, even if you're brand new, you're just getting going. If you can speak intelligently and you've done this maybe a few times, maybe some free bats before, and you're ready to figure out how to up your game, then this is definitely for you. We're going to have a lot of fun. And I think this is why this works really well is I know when you and I first started talking that you focus a lot more on the performance side of speaking, on the delivering an amazing presentation, an amazing talk. And the reality is, is that like an amazing talk, if not one of the best, if not the best marketing tool that you have. And so if you're able to focus more on the art and the presentation side of it, and I can talk a little bit on the business side of it, it sounds like just a beautiful match. It sure does. Now, let me ask you something very, very important to start. I think uh, really the most critical question I could possibly ask you. You have listed on your site that you are always down for friends trivia. Oh, boy. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a little bit since the show has been on, but you, well, as far as I know, you never made a cameo, did you? I was never on Friends, no. Okay, all right. But I do have a question for you. All right. In the episode, The One with the Embryos, what does Rachel say Chandler does for a living? Chandler does for a living. He's a, uh, is that the one where they play the game? I'm not giving you any hints. He's a, uh, if it's the one where they played the game, she said he was a, uh, like a transponster. Yes, Transpons- that, yes uh, a transponster. That's exactly right. You nailed it. I don't know Go how you did now. it. That's pretty good. That pretty actually good. was really good. You're kind impressed of, with that. Kind of freaky, actually. All right. So let's see, Grant, how do you see your role as a professional speaker? What do you find rewarding about the role? What do you find most frustrating? Well, dude, as you all know, like one of the most rewarding things about being a speaker is just that 30, 45, 60 minutes where you're on stage, you're in front of an audience and you know that 
you have them, that they're with you, that you're the proverbial eating out of the palm of your hand, and you're taking them on a journey, really, you know, and so you're able to make them laugh, you're able to make them cry, you're able to make them think, and you're able to hopefully, the ultimate point of being a speaker, I think, is to cause people to take action, to do something different with their life or with their business or create some type of change in some way. And so just to know that, like, you are in that moment, like, there is just, there's nothing at all that compares to that. And so I think that's the reason why I think so many of us get into this and are interested in this is we want that moment, the opportunity to make some type of difference, to make some type of impact. And maybe for us, maybe it was a, you know, a speaker that we saw years and years ago that you're like, ah, that's it. That's the thing that I want to do. And so it's just, I don't know, it's just such a rewarding, rewarding thing to just to know that you're watching people and they're getting it and they're nodding their head and they're with you. And then hopefully ultimately you're making some type of difference. You're making some type of impact with your words there. So I'm curious for you, like we've been talking a little bit about me on the business side of it, but I'm curious how you really got into this. And so we, you know, I had you on our past podcast. How did you get into that? And so we can link up to that in the show notes there for people that really want the full story. But speaking was one of those things that prior to this, you were an actor and not just like doing like a random commercial here or there, like you're on some legit shows. So how did you kind of make that transition from acting into speaking? Yeah, so it wasn't a direct transition. I left acting and I went into the fitness industry on the business side and I worked there for about five years. Then I went back into entertainment on the production side for about a year and I realized I I do much better running my own organization. I don't have to fly under the radar uh, and ask for permission. I just do what I want to do. So I started my own consultancy, but I focused first on helping people in the fitness industry who are independent contractors get booked solid. That's where I started. I didn't really intend to be a speaker. In fact, at the time, I I had no idea that there was a speaking industry. I really had never been to conferences like that. In entertainment, in acting, your company doesn't send you to events and you don't have your big annual conference. So I wasn't really familiar with that. And then As I started to market the business, I realized, well, you can speak free at a lot of different places and can pick up business from it. And that's what I did at the beginning. I really had no intention of becoming a professional speaker. But the first time I saw somebody speak on a big stage, I sat back and I went, oh, I could do that. Mm -hmm. I think I could do that right now. Like, I don't even think I would need to think twice about it. I could go up there and I could do that. What? Uh, let me jump in. Let me interrupt yeah. you. Like, what made you, what gave you that confidence? Because I think there's a lot of people who are in that spot who saw someone speak and thought, oh, I, that should be me up there. I could totally yeah. do that. So, like, where does that come from? Like, how do you feel? What makes you feel like that could be you? A couple of things. Number one, certainly, I had extensive training as a performer. So the stage was the most natural, most comfortable place for me. In fact, I'm more interesting, I think, on stage than at a dinner party. So I'm funnier on stage when there's a large audience. My timing is better. I'm often more insightful. I'm able to make a case or make an argument often even better when I'm on stage. And in part because I've done a lot of rehearsal so that I make sure I know how to articulate the point and make the argument, so to speak. But I also think that it just looked really fun. And sometimes yeah. when, when something looks really fun, it's because you have a natural affinity for it. 
So preparation plus improvisation is what creates really authentic spontaneity that's compelling for an audience. And that's a big theme of Steal the Show, which is my most recent book, is how to be incredibly authentic to seem like what you're doing has never happened before. It's the absolute first time that something, that this moment exists. And it's driven through improvisation and preparation. Improvisation without preparation is just winging it. And winging it is very dangerous when you want to be a really high-level professional in this industry. And of course, absolute rigidity and adherence to what you prepared without improvisation when necessary, again, creates a stifled, constrained performance. So it's finding the balance between those two things and having enough confidence, being comfortable on stage so that you can roll with whatever is happening. But just back to answer your question originally about, you know, sort of getting into it is once I saw that there was an opportunity to make money as a speaker, I definitely leaned into it, but I didn't go after it with a really, really strong intention. And I say that because when I started, I was very keen on building a business. I was concerned about having a practice. To me, a practice was something that required me to show up all the time. And a business was something that could have legs long-term without me there. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is sometimes tricky when you're in a business that is personality driven mm -hmm. and is driven by intellectual property that you create. People want to hear that from you very often. So it's finding the balance between those two things. So I was just careful not to focus only on being a speaker, but to build a business around my intellectual property so that I can speak when I wanted to speak and when the gig was right. But I also had other streams of revenue that would support me even if I wasn't out on the road all the time. So I focused on both of those things. And then it's true, you know, when I started writing books and when they became hits, I started getting more and more calls and I didn't have to pursue it in the way that I might have had to, you know, if those books hadn't come out. So I'm curious. So you kind of touched on it there where you were, even as a, when you're just getting started as a speaker, you're kind of thinking a couple steps down the road of part of the challenge with speaking is that it is very personality driven, that it is one person on one stage in front of one audience in one place at one time. And so you're already thinking about how do you scale or leverage that beyond just you, which I don't think a lot of speakers think about. I think it's, you know, we oftentimes just view it as how do I get the next gig? You know, how do I get the next booking? rather than thinking about how am I building a business? So what were some things that you did even early on to build both your speaking business, but also build something that was leverageable and scalable beyond just you as an individual single person? Sure. I really did focus on building a platform to sell products and services rather than just building relationships with the meeting planners and the event coordinators. So Early on, I put together group programs online, and we're talking 2003. So there was no social media at that time. We were using conference lines, which were new. And so I was kind of at the forefront of these online group training programs in our industry, and they were very, very effective and very popular at the beginning. Now they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. And 
people don't make much of their innovativeness. But at the time, they were quite innovative and people were really compelled by them. And people in the event planning industry were hadn't really woken up to them yet. So we were ahead of the curve. And so that's what I focused on uh, significantly at that time. And we still do a lot of that. And of course, as people know, we produce our own events as well as going and speaking at other people's events around the country. But what about you? I mean, you came from a little different perspective. You didn't start out writing books. You started out as a youth pastor. And then you made a transition into public speaking for the youth market. And tell me if I'm correct, but I think you've spoken to over 400,000 people, 45 different states. You've got a curriculum that's taught in 400 schools around the country. So how did you get your start? How did you make the transition? Yeah, almost a, a similar type of thing where whenever I, I first got started, I, I saw a couple guys that were speaking at some conferences or events. And it was just one of those things that, like you said, it just seemed fun. Like you just kind of had that internal sense of like when you're just getting started, uh, maybe there's just that level of overconfidence of going like, I, oh, I, that could totally be me. But yeah, there's also that overconfidence from not knowing. Yeah, totally. But it's also, I think, the perspective of like, okay, with some work, I could be at that level. And that that doesn't happen overnight. And so, but just knowing that I think I could do that. And so, yeah, you're correct that I was a youth pastor for a little while. So I was doing a little bit of speaking there. I would speak at some youth services here and there. And then would also speak at quote unquote big church from time to time on the weekends. And so I did some speaking that just felt like every time I did it, this is so much fun. How do I do more of this? And so, yeah, so I met a couple guys who were speaking more at different types of school assemblies and conferences and colleges. And so just started kind of picking their brain, learning from them, figuring out what was working for them, how they got going. Uh, And really, that's kind of what I paid attention to was was people that were speaking in a a similar industry. And I think that's I've always believed that that's a great, great way to get started as a speaker or in any type of industry or profession is find someone who's doing what you want to do and doing it in a way that you want to do it. Because, Michael, you and I, we both know speakers who speak 100, 150 dates a year. And it's just, it's a lot. And so for me, I was newly married. I had my first daughter on the way and just going like, I don't want to speak constantly. Like I still want to have still way more important to me to be a husband, to be a father. And so finding a couple of people who are doing the speaking thing, whatever that meant, doing it in a way that made sense where they were able to also, you know, balance being a husband, father, those types of things. And so that first year uh, I started just reaching out to potential conferences and events. And I got a website, got a demo video together, which we'll, we'll talk more about, I'm sure. And, and just got some of those like basic marketing tools in place, started reaching out, making connections, building relationships with decision makers and event planners. And slowly but surely, we just, we built the business that way. And so honestly, it, what we did was nothing glamorous. There's nothing sexy to it. Like you said, we never had the book. We never had some big name. We didn't have, uh, I never appeared on some movie or anything that made it any easier easier to get in the door. It was really, it was just a lot of building relationships and building connections with those decision makers. And slowly over time, we were able to, you know, get one booking and we were able to leverage that into a different booking and able to use that in for another booking. And so it took us about 18 months, a year and a half to go from literally zero bookings on the calendar to being able to, to do this full time. And so I've been doing it full time now for about eight years. Like you mentioned, we spoke at over 450 paid events, spoke to, uh, yeah, close to, close to half a million people at this point now. Well, let's go into two things. One, you've been using the word we. I mean, do you have a team that's 
helping you? I mean, did you have somebody or multiple people help you when you started or was it just you picking up the phone, trying to make stuff happen? Yeah, good question. So today I've got a, a small team of people that I work with. I have always believed that and I guess let me back up. When, whenever I got started, it was always, it was just me. And so I was the one that was, I never picked up the phone per se. I, I was always uh, reaching out, sending emails to people. It was a lot of just guerrilla marketing, which again, it's not complicated. It's not overly difficult, but it's just a matter of, of actually doing it. I spend a lot of time on Google just trying to find existing events that happen to take place with audiences that would be a good fit for me. So a lot of it in the beginning was just me. And honestly, in terms of the speaker marketing side of the business, a lot of that has continued to be me because I think that a lot of, especially new speakers, we're always looking for like that magic bullet of I'm looking for an agent or I'm looking for a bureau or I'm looking for someone who will just book me. And I just, I believe like, yes, those things exist, but they don't exist for brand new speakers who've never spoken before. And so if you can't book yourself, why would someone else be interested in booking you? So a lot of the sales stuff, the marketing stuff I did early on and would still continue to do today, because at the end of the day, as a speaker, you are the product, you are the brand, you are the thing that an event planner is buying. So as I've added people to my team, a lot of what they're doing is more of the behind the scenes stuff of helping me with logistics and travel and invoicing and contracts and all of those type of just pieces that I don't necessarily have to have my hand in. But in terms of the relationship with the client, that's one of the things that I've always been really, really intentional about building. So in terms of using that pronoun of we, I've always just referred to it as we because I try to remind my team that even though I may be the one that's on stage and I may be the one that they are specifically hiring, I make it clear to them that I can't do what I do without them. And so I try to remind every time I get like an email from someone or a message from someone who's saying, hey, I heard you speak and it made this kind of impact in my life. I always want to share that with the team to say, listen, even though I may be the one that was on stage with the microphone and the light shining in my eyes, it was you that helped get me there or you that helped facilitate that. And so letting them know that we're all a part of this thing. Great. So number two, what about those tactics? A couple things that you did early on that you found effective for identifying the right kind of places for you to speak and then connecting with the decision makers and then getting them to say yes. So can we touch on those three things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to go really in depth in this and that in that pre-con day. So it's definitely something people don't want to miss. But but the, the nutshell is, is, I think foundationally, I think people want to get really, really clear on three key questions. First of all, why do you want to speak? How is speaking contributing and fitting into your bigger business? And then the, the other two questions would be, who do you want to speak to and what is it that you want to speak about? Because I think this is something that a lot of speakers, when they're just getting going and they uh, they just, it's kind of like what you said and what I said of, of going, I saw someone on, on stage and I thought, that looks fun. I want to do that. And that's typically where like as far as our minds go on the business track of going like, I want to do that. That looks fun. But you really got to get clear on who it is that you want to speak to and what it is that you want to speak about. If you if say, let's use an example here of, of you, Michael, you published several books before. And so if you were going to a publisher and you were presenting a book concept and they were to ask you, hey, who is this book for? What's this book about? And your response is, well, the book is for humans. It's for everybody. <laughs> Well, where's it going to, if we're going to put this on the shelf in Barnes and Noble, what section is it going to go? Oh, it can go in any section. 
there are no publishers going to pick that up. So in the same way as a speaker, if we're talking to you and you say, what do you, you know, who do you speak to? What do you talk about? And you say, well, I, you know, I can talk to anybody about anything. Well, the reality is that you can talk to nobody about anything. So you want to get super, super clear. And once you're clear on who you want to speak to, so in my case, early on, my speaking business has evolved and changed a little bit, but early on in the beginning, it was speaking a lot to high school students through school assemblies and through student leadership conferences. So I was really, really clear on who it was that I wanted to speak to. Then it makes it a heck of a lot easier to market to those people, to find those people, and to look for some of those existing events. And so I've always found that it's a lot easier to start with some of those existing conferences and existing events because a conference is already planning on having a speaker. You're not trying to convince them to have a speaker. They're going to have a speaker either way. And so you're just showing them why you are a good fit for their event or for their audience. So that's a lot of what I did in the beginning was getting really clear again on the who, the why, the what, and then trying to find those type of existing conferences and events of where those people gather. So from there, what I would do and how I would practically do that, honestly, is a lot of it was just Google. There's a lot of ways that you can do this, but Google was the simplest thing. So let me give you an example. Okay. Let's say that you wanted to, someone listening to this would say, I want to talk to cat lovers. All right. So what I would do is I would go onto Google and I'd look up things like cat conference, cat convention, cat event, uh, pet conference. And you're just like any synonyms, any type of keywords of some of those existing events. And you're looking for those events around your subject or topic. And then from there, what I would do is I would send a lot of times just a short, simple, quick email. I'm not picking up the phone and making a cold call, but just some quick, simple email where I'm not trying to pitch them or just go right into the sales pitch or this whole big monologue about myself. What I'm trying to do is build a relationship, trying to build a connection. Because remember, if I'm a cat speaker, all right, and I'm not, but if I'm a cat speaker and I come across a cat conference, they are looking for what I offer. I'm not trying to annoy them with something that they have no interest in. So I'm reaching out to them and, and trying to learn more a bit about their conference, learn more about what it is they do, and then be able to oftentimes transition that conversation into, hey, if you're looking for a speaker, here's what I do. And here's what I speak about. Here's why I think this could be a fit. Here's other cat conferences that I have spoke at before and how this could work with your audience. And so it's a lot of just relationship building. It's a lot of following up with people. It's a lot of, in the beginning, again, it's, it's a lot of guerrilla marketing. Now, the, again, the longer you do it, the easier it is to get referrals, to get repeat business, to get referrals from existing clients, to get referrals from other speakers, which is a huge source of bookings. But again, a lot of this in the beginning, again, it's not glamorous. It's not sexy. It's just a matter of building those relationships, finding those existing events and letting them know who you are and what it is that you do. Sometimes Book Yourself Solid students, they push back a little bit when we encourage them to get very specific with respect to who they serve and what they help them do, you know, the result that they produce. And it's in part because they're nervous that they might then miss an opportunity. Somebody else outside that market might want them and they feel like if they are too targeted, then that person will pass over them or reject them. Or they're afraid, what if I don't really love being in that market all the time? Am I going to be stuck for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. Or there's a couple different markets or a couple different things that I want to speak on or I'm interested in, and I'm not sure which one I want to do. And often I remind them that after 13 years of doing this, having pushed a lot of people to make a very specific choice, 
with respect to who they serve and what they help them do. Nobody's come back to me a year later and been like, Michael, you know what? I'm so pissed off at you. I'm booked solid now. I have more business than I can possibly handle. And it's your fault. I hate you. Nobody's ever <laughs> said that because let's say you spend a year in a market on a particular topic that you like. And then after about a year or so, you go, you know, I feel like making a change, but you've killed it. You're working all the time. You got great clients. If you really wanted to make a change, it's a lot easier to make a change once you have a level of success than bouncing around from one thing to the another and you know to the next and not really ever landing on something. Yesterday I had a conversation with a media company that reached out to me, a big production company that often represents uh, celebrity brands and they said, "You know, Michael, we're interested in you and your brand and turning you into a household name. You know, that's their pitch. And I'm like, well, you know, I wouldn't mind being a household name as long as I don't really have to leave the house. <laughs> they didn't find that very funny. But, uh, I, you know, I said, this is great. Let's talk about it. So we had a really neat conversation. Great people. They asked a lot of good questions. And interestingly enough, one of the things that we talked about was which market and which result that I would be most interested in having them focus on. Because I have a Book Yourself Solid business and I have a heroic public speaking business. Mm -hmm. So on the Book Yourself Solid side, for the first 10 years of my career, it was for service professionals, how to get clients, period. And of course, in the beginning, I focused on more vertical markets. I started the fitness industry, then I moved out into other health and wellness areas, and then I moved into financial services, et cetera. And I kept building that over time. But on the public speaking side of the business, it's a lot of people who uh, want to be public speakers or already are, you know, we also work with A-listers as well. And it's also people who don't really want to be professional speakers, but they want to speak a lot either because they have a message they want to share or they want to book business as a result. And, you know, they're saying, well, which would you like to focus on? Because one may be better turn you into a household name than the other. And so you see, that's the problem with having multiple identities. Now, for me, it works fine for our businesses at this stage because the public speaking is a direct extension of the work we've been doing for so long, and it serves the same market that we've been serving for the last 13 years. But from a publicity perspective, sort of a TV media perspective, they want that incredible focus, really specific audience, really specific type of result, and to build, build an identity, a persona is actually what they said, the right. personality around that. And so it's the same thing that you're talking about here is that real specificity. And when you're starting out, or even if you're not starting out, but you want to become a household name, that kind of specificity makes a big difference. Yeah. And, and to speak to that, I think a lot of this also comes back to that question of why you want to speak in the first place, because there's, and kind of also how speaking fits into your business. Because if you're someone who wants to speak, let's just say uh, you have an existing business and you want to speak five, maybe 10 times a year. And speaking is not necessarily the primary thing you want to do. It's just kind of part of it. Uh, well, that's going to change some of the types of events that you may want to speak at versus let's say you want to speak 75, 100 times a year, and you want to do this full time and you want to make multiple six figures, that's also going to dictate and determine a little bit of the types of markets that you want to speak. I may be totally wrong on this and someone may email us and correct us, but it may be really, really difficult if you want to speak to that cat industry and talk to cat lovers to speak 100 times a year and to make a really, really good living. So again, some of the why question may also determine a little bit of that who and that what. So I'm curious for you, 
you, Mike, when you were getting started, how did you, because I think what you said was, was totally accurate. I think so many people that are listening to this are people that I have a bunch of different interests. There are a bunch of different things I could talk about. And I even felt like that a little bit early on. And even still today, there's a bunch of different types of audio. I've talked to high school students and junior high students and college students and parents and teachers and entrepreneurs and business owners and corporations. And so a wide range today. But when you're getting started, you can't the longer you speak, I think the easier it is to spread that net a little bit wider. But in the beginning, you do want to be super clear. So for you, how did you really narrow down like, no, this is the audience that I'm going to serve. This is the audience I'm going to go after. How, like, how did you come to that conclusion for yourself? When I started coaching, I really was a generalist because I didn't really know much about it. I didn't know much about what worked, what people would buy. And I realized pretty quickly that people don't buy conversations. They buy very specific results. Mm -hmm. And in order to produce very specific results for people, you have to be addressing very specific problems. And certain groups of people have specific problems. Now, sometimes it seems like problems are spread across demographics, and they often are. So often an accountant has very similar problems to a photographer, but there will also be some things that are different. But the accountant or the photographer, when they look at you, they want to make sure that you know everything about them. So what I discovered over time is that there are three reasons that the target market is so important. Number one, so you know where to do your marketing. Otherwise, you're all over the place. Right. But if you know where to do your marketing, it's a lot easier to focus your efforts so you know where they hang out, what publications they read, what conferences they go to, the influencers in that particular market, et cetera. Number two, when you show up there, they know you're dedicated to them. Mm -hmm. And that makes a big difference to them. They go, oh, he knows me. She gets me. But when you are willing to serve anyone that has a pulse and a checkbook, then they may say, ah, does he really know me? Does he really care about me? I mean, he doesn't, he hasn't like dedicated himself to me. And that's what people want. And number three, they already have established networks of connection. They're already talking to other people in that demographic. For example, I was asked to go give a speech in 2005 to a conference for balloonists, <laughs> not hot air balloonists, but people who twist balloons into funny animals and like shapes. People, like the people you see at restaurants. Yeah, exactly right. I had no idea that there was a conference for people who twisted balloons. That's but crazy. apparently there are a few associations in the U.S. Maybe there are others outside the U.S., but there are about three or so from what I understand in the U.S. And I said, here's what I cost. At the time, I think I was charging like 10 grand or something like that. And they said, okay. I said, I'll be there. No problem. <laughs> so I went and it was wild. I mean, they, the, the balloons, that, I mean, there were people who had created balloon costumes from head to toe, like transformer balloon. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> so these was one of the wackiest groups that I'd ever spoken for. The only one that was crazier was Athena's at home novelties if you know what I mean by at-home novelties. But this one, what was interesting about this, and the reason I bring it up is because within a week after that conference, I had already had two other requests for the other two conferences in that industry to go speak. Nice. Now, I decided not to go speak because I didn't want to become the balloonist's 
you know, um, <laughs> that guy, that guy. Now, there's nothing wrong with balloonists, but I had a, ver- a different focus for my particular work. And it was just another recognition of uh, how important it is to be very specific with respect to who you serve and the choices you make, because it tells the world something about you. Everything you do says something about you. I mean, that's why performance is so interesting to me. That's why the work you do as a speaker is something that must be crafted. Because if you're not crafting your identity and the character that you bring to the stage, of course, it must be based on who you are authentically, not manufactured. Crafted and manufacturing are two entirely different things from my perspective. Because everything you do and say tells the world something about you. So back to when I got started. Over time, I was able to extend my reach because once you are known, people have or they'll place more trust in you even without knowing you very well because they see that other people trust you. Right. And as a result, I was able to become more general with respect to the companies that I would go work with. But think about it this way, from a creative perspective. When you're speaking, it's a good idea to have core intellectual property and one or two or maybe three speeches that you give over and over and over. Now, you have you design them in modules so that some of the modules change or are reorganized and then customized for a particular audience, but you're not creating entirely new intellectual protocol or a whole new speech just for one particular group. Right. It's a very, very dangerous way to go about doing your work from my perspective. I've seen many people try and have a hard time because no matter how naturally talented you are, no matter how clever you are, no matter how quick on your feet you are, you will always be better if you're well-prepared. And if you have to create a new speech every time you go to give a speech, it's going to take an extraordinary amount of time away from other things that you need to be doing. And of course, you may not perform quite as well when you do it. Another conversation I had yesterday was with a charity that my mother is very involved in. It's called Woman to Woman. And it serves women who have or have had ovarian cancer. My mother had ovarian cancer. And my mom told them I'd come and give a speech at their conference this year. And she said, that's okay, right? I said, yeah, that's fine, mom, no problem. (laughs) And then I talked to them about it and they were so lovely and they had researched me extensively online and they really knew my material. I mean, they knew my material better than any organizer ever has when first approaching me about speaking. And I was really impressed by that. So they had really thought about what they would wanted me to do. After I got off the call with them, I said to my wife, Amy, I said, I said, I go, oh my God, this is going to take so much work. I said, I really want to go and be of service to them, but this is going to be a huge, huge effort. And of course I'm going for free because it's my mom's charity. Right, right, right. It will take more work for me to prepare for that because it's a different target audience. The topics are sort of reconfiguration of things that I often do, not even normally, but often. And they're looking for a different kind of result, but they want me to do it and they think I can do it and they'd love me to do it. Great. But that'll take a lot more work than conference where they'll pay me $30,000 to go. 
And so that's the thing that we have to be careful about. And I'll say yes to that because it's my mom's, but I would not say yes to that if I didn't have a personal connection to it where I felt that I was compelled to go and do it. Yeah. I mean, the longer you speak and if someone, yeah, I think for both of us, a lot of times at this point in our careers, a lot of the business come from someone who they were in the audience at some point. They, maybe they saw us or maybe they were our friends with the, you know, that decision maker or event planner who booked us at one point. And so we're referred to them. And so whenever a client is hiring you, they're not hiring you to come bring your JV material. You know, they don't want you to come just wing it and try some stuff. They're hiring you because they saw you. And it's basically like, can you, that thing that you did there, can you come do it here for That's right. us? That's and right. So they don't want you to do, they don't, they don't want you to be writing a brand new, th- that story that you told over there that just killed and the audience loved and that made the point perfectly. My company, my business, my association, my people, they need to hear that same story. So right. I want you to come do the, exactly what you did there. Come do it for our audience. So yeah, yeah I think that, so, that's totally some, true. Sometimes our students make that mistake of thinking that they shouldn't do what they've done before because then it, suggest that they're not making an effort. Mm -hmm. And then they go and they do their speech and the the decision maker comes up to them and goes, wait, what happened to the thing where you were skiing and you fell down and hit your head on the tree? What happened to that? I love that story. Right. right. Oh, I I didn't think you want me to tell because I've already told that one before, you know, but not to these people though. Right. No, exactly. And so, and and also keep in mind too, that there's always going to be situations where maybe there's going to be a little bit of overlap where a couple audience members saw you a year ago or something. Okay. But think about it. Like the best possible speaker that you could ever even imagine that you saw speak a year ago, you are going to remember very, very little, unfortunately, maybe just a couple things. Yeah. So if you come back in and you, and you do the same talk or even just a, you know, a, the mostly same talk, you're going to be okay with that. And so the kind of like you just said there, Michael, of stories that you and I have both told that we've told hundreds and hundreds of times, maybe we've heard them hundreds of times because we've delivered them. But for that audience and that setting, it's the first time that they've heard it. And so you're that story at that point is very, very polished. You know where you're taking the people, you know, that punchline, you know, the setup, you know, exactly the point you're going to make, you know, the pauses, you know, all of it, because it's really, really refined. And so that's, that's one thing I'm kind of curious on is we've talked a little bit about the marketing side of speaking and how you how we both got going. But one of the things that we kind of touched on earlier is that one of your best marketing tools is just showing up and just crushing it of really, as you say, stealing the show. So you've always viewed speaking as a performance. Why? Like, why is that? I think a lot of people don't think of speaking as a performance. I'm just I'm a hired gun to go up. I do my thing, I collect my check and I go home. But for you, it it seems like it's just, it's much more than that from a performance standpoint. So talk a little bit about that. It is. And, you know, performance is sometimes a word that makes some people uncomfortable because they think that performance suggests that it's fake or phony. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really nothing could be farther from the truth. To me, good performance is not about fake behavior. Good performance is authentic behavior in a manufactured environment. And it extends far beyond just the stage. Our life is made up of lots of high stakes situations, a job interview, a negotiation, a sales pitch, even meeting your future in-laws for the first time is a high stakes situation. And those high stakes situations require that you perform at a high level. And the 
level at which you perform often determines the quality of your life. So if you fall flat during those high stakes situations, then not a lot happens. But if you can shine when the spotlight's on you, well, then you can play a pretty big game and you get to choose the roles that you're playing. You don't let anybody cast you in a role of their choosing. You get to choose. So my background as an actor influenced all aspects of my life, not just my ability to perform on the stage, but how you handle yourself physically, how you control your breathing, how you interact with other people physically in order to get them to feel the way that you want them to feel. You know, if you think about our job, our job as speakers is to get people to think differently or feel differently or act differently. But we are also trying to do that on a daily basis, aren't we? In business, we're trying to get people to take action that is in our best interest and hopefully their best interest as well. When we're in relationships, we want people to do things that are in our best interest and their best interest as well, hopefully. So you see, these skills can be used for good or they can be used for evil Mm -hmm. in that I don't think there's anything wrong with having an agenda. We all have agendas. Whether or not we align that agenda with the needs and best interests of the other person is always the big question. And if we can align our needs with the needs of other people, then we've got, you know, really, really beautiful symbiotic relationship. And I think that's in part what we're doing as speakers. We get really, really clear on our objectives for that audience. And we go after those objectives relentlessly. And when you go after those objectives relentlessly, you try lots of different tactics. And the more tactics you try, often the more compelling your presentation is. And so if you look at your speaking the way that an actor looks at creating a character for a play or a film that they're in, what you're doing is you're first identifying your objectives. You're not just trying to figure out how to go out and tell a story because telling a story doesn't mean anything unless it serves the objective. Being funny doesn't mean anything unless it serves the objective. So for example... One of my friends once got a comment card that said, if I'd wanted to laugh, I would have gone to a comedy show. Meaning the speaker was very funny, but she didn't get what she came there to get, which was advice on marketing. So if your kid is in third grade and the kid loves the teacher because the teacher is incredibly funny, but it's supposed to be teaching the math and the kid doesn't learn math. Well, it's not a great math teacher. If you go to a comedy club and the person on stage is not funny, but teaches you a lot of math, you left there learning math, but not laughing, that's not a great comedian. So we have to know what our role is in relation to the objective, which is the promise we make to an audience. And I think often people skip this part. They just think about how do I perform so that people like me? And the last thing we want to do as performers is work for approval. That is very dangerous, but it is a natural 
inclination for a lot of people who want to speak. Because often, if you want to speak, you also want approval. You want people to clap for you. You want people to laugh at your jokes. You want people to go, oh my God, they're so smart. You want people to like you. All of those things are wonderful. I love those things too. I don't like when anybody says, I hate Michael Port. He's a dick. You know, like they just, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm going for. I'm going for service. I want to be in service of the people that I'm meant to serve. But if you go for approval, then you generally are producing something that is about you rather than about them. And it's never about us. It's always about them. If we are using stories that of experiences that we've had, or we're using ourselves in some way to demonstrate a point, that's still in service of them. So, of course, we use our own life experiences in our work, but we do it for them. And that's a critical component. One of my clients once called me up frantic because she got an interview on a morning broadcast network TV show, and it was for a book that she had. And it was this thing she'd been trying to get forever, and she's working so hard to get it. She finally got it, and now she's freaking out. Michael, what do I do? I want to be good. I said, you cannot be good. I think she might have fallen off her chair. <laughs> You've given her no hope. Yeah, I said, no, it's not that you're not good, but you can't try to go into a performance situation to be good. You can only go in there to be helpful if you are a speaker, to make yeah. change, to affect them in some way. Right. And if you affect them, then they will perceive you as... But there's a speaker where you've got to provoke. That might be your job. And when they leave there, they might not be saying, my God, I love Grant. Like Grant's the greatest guy in the world. They might be going, God, that guy really kind of, kind of pissed me off a little bit. But they're not angry at you for it. They've got something going on with themselves because of something that you said or did or button that you pushed. Two weeks later, they go, that guy, Grant, he changed my life. Mm -hmm. because he said something that pushed my buttons and I wasn't happy about it, didn't like hearing it. But now, you know what? Now it's a good thing that I heard it because I made a change. So everything is about them. And I think it takes a fair amount of work to craft a performance that produces a result, is entertaining, compelling, and keeps people on the edge of their seat. There was a video that was being passed around of Aretha Franklin. Did you see this online? I saw a little bit of it where she just sang for the president. Yeah, she sang at the Kennedy Center Awards and she sang a Carol King song and she killed it. Yeah. I mean, it went viral immediately. She crushed it. And when I saw that, the first thing that came to mind. Well, the first thing that came to mind was just how extraordinary she is. The second thing that came to mind was, wow, I want every speaker to see this because if we get any idea or if we start to build up our ego and start to think that we're these incredible performers and we're, we're the best in the world, what we do and et cetera, et cetera, I think we got to watch Aretha Franklin sing sitting at a piano in front of 3,000, 4,000 people. Yeah. Because to me, that is the highest level of performance. And I think that's what we should be aspiring to, even though we're not singing and playing the piano. But I think our bar is set too low. 
I think that the in the speaking industry, the bar is way too low. And I see this with the professionals. When they come to work with us in our A-lister programs, you know, the high-level professionals who are already out there making 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 50000 dollars When they start working with us, they often think, oh, I'll just get a couple tips here and there. And by the second day, they're wondering if they are have any talent whatsoever. <laughs> Crush not, them down to build them up. Yeah, not because we're putting them down, but because we're showing them how much better they can be. And they're seeing a side of themselves that they've never seen before because they've never worked on their performances the way that an actor would work on developing a character. By the third day, they feel more capable than they've ever felt before because now they know what is actually possible. And that's what we're trying to go for with everyone. You've got to take a lot of risk to be a performer. It takes a lot of guts to put yourself out there. And Rosalind Russell once said that acting is like standing in front of an audience naked and turning around very slowly. <laughs> and I think the greatest public speakers should think about their work in the same way. Because that's your job. Your job is to reveal yourself in such a way that you can change the world one speech at a time. Yeah. Well, to jump into one of the things that you, I think this ties in really well with what you were talking about earlier with your mother and speaking at her charity is that here's an event that you're going to do because, you know, because it's your mom and you want to support her and help her and all that. But it's not the, the typical audience that you might speak to. And so you could take all of your existing material and you could just go do that. And it's not a perfect fit. And, you know, it may be just close enough. And that would be so much simpler for you as the speaker, performer, from the preparation standpoint, to do material that you already know. But as you spoke to, it's going to be such a difficult event to prepare for because you want to make sure that everything that you're saying aligns with that audience. Your mother's charity is going to be a very, very different type of audience than some major corporation versus a group of balloonists versus a group of college kids. They're all going to have their different nuances. So yeah, your job as the speaker, as the performer, is to make sure that what it is that you are communicating is tweaked and right and specific for that audience where they do feel that sense of, it's like, this was for me. This is what this audience, this group needed to hear in this moment. Well, that's the goal. That sure is the goal. And, you know, I know I'll do everything in my power to make that happen, but there's no guarantees. And, you know, I bombed a speech once. I mean, I've given speeches that, you know, weren't brilliant. But when I say I bombed one, I bombed one once. Like people were walking out of the room bombed. And that was, I don't know, two thousand and maybe eight, nine or something. And man, I almost made me want to quit. I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is too hard. I can't watch. I can't have that experience ever again. Then I realized like, wait a minute. I'm thinking about myself. It's not about myself. It's about them. So let me get myself out of this picture. Let me just focus on what can I do next time that would actually keep them in their seats? You know, what, what, did I, what mistakes did I make instead of obsessing on how I felt about it. Let me focus on what I could do next time to be in service of them. You and I, we've both been in a bunch of different types of settings where sometimes like the audience is just right there. It's the perfect setup. It's the perfect room. How much do you feel like 
the event space, the conference itself plays a part into your your performance and how a talk actually goes. Yeah, I think it does. I think that there are only certain elements that we really can control. Right. And since it's a theatrical experience, there are components that are important to consider that if we were designing it ourselves, we'd have control over. But you know, we don't always. So we want to do our best to manage those types of situations. So the type of space, you know, sometimes you get in a space where, gosh, it's, it's 200 feet wide and 30 feet deep. And you're on, on either the long side or the short side, and you either have to run back and forth 200 feet, or you have to try to reach them 200 feet back when it's only 30 feet wide. Right. But if you have skill, then you know how to handle those situations. And that's why training is so important to me. I know sometimes I feel like a nagging mother, not that mothers nag, fathers nag too. I nag my son all the time, but <laughs> a nagging parent because I harp on this so much, but I don't know how one knows how to handle different size stages unless they've trained and understand it technically. And often what people do in the speaking business is they just figure it out over time. They screwed up a few times and then maybe a year later they start to figure it out. But I would rather my students not have to make the mistakes in live performances. I'd rather them learn those skills in rehearsal. So one of the things that we do in our graduate level program, uh, we don't announce, we don't pub promote this publicly, but people who come to our live events and some of the people who have worked with our coaches they are invited to participate in the graduate program, which is something that we do for four months where the students come for four or five days every month to work with my wife, Amy, and I. And we do that because if you really are going to get great at something, and certainly if you're going to prepare a speech that's, that's going to steal the show, you need time to rehearse it. It's not something you put together in a week or two, it's like I, I saw someone promoting a book writing program and they're like, you know, come up with the whole killer book title in 30 minutes. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. I've written six. I've never come up with a book title in 30 minutes. So, right. you know, it, it sometimes these things take some time. And the reason I mention it is because one of the things we do towards the end of that training is we put our students in really difficult situations. So, for example... Uh, Jordan Harbinger was in the last year's program, and Jordan is the host of Art of Charm, which mm -hmm. gets over 2 million downloads a month, one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And he came because he wanted to work on his performances on stage. You know, he knew how to host a podcast, and he's brilliant at it. But, you know, he's like, I don't know what to do with myself when I'm stage. I'm behind a desk in the podcast. I know how to speak into the mic, but when I'm on stage, I don't know what to do. And he really became a wonderful speaker. And we put him and the others in the situation where we'd have them speak. But before they spoke, they would be out of the room. And I would give specific instructions to the audience so that they put that speaker in a really difficult, uncomfortable place and sometimes even acted as hostile audiences. Like what? What would you have them do? For example, with Jordan, Jordan's very funny and he can usually get people laughing right away and people respond to him. And, you know, he feels very good when they do. So I said, here's the thing. When Jordan starts speaking, no response whatsoever. Zero. Nothing. Not a smile, not a laugh, not an acknowledgement. That's brutal, nothing. man. 
brutal. And then what I want you to do is, as he is speaking, I want you one by one, slowly, to just get up and leave. <laughs> Walk out. Now, here's what's interesting. These people were his friends. They'd been working together for months. They were close. And in fact, I would say a lot of these folks really loved each other. They created an ensemble together. They supported each other. They cared for each other. Even though, even though he had that kind of relationship with the people in the room, he still completely freaked out. His face was red. He started sweating. He got angrier as each person left the room. And it showed. And he said after that, he goes, nothing will faze me because it will never be that bad. Then with another uh, one of the uh, people in the program, I had an attorney who was a criminal attorney who was uh, one of the students also. And I had that criminal attorney grill the speaker because the speaker had a business and he's, this is what he spoke on, was how to reduce taxes. But he wasn't an, he's not an accountant and he's not an attorney. He's a financial advisor. And so sometimes people question whether or not he has the qualifications to deliver on this. And this criminal defense attorney grilled him. When I say grilled, it was brutal. And John got more and more defensive and more and more defensive. But when we had him do it again the next time, after I helped him learn how to respond to that kind of pushback... All of a sudden, he did it with grace and really, really easy, and he won over the whole room. So, you know, you're going to be in situations, uh, you know, where you don't have control, and you're going to need to learn how to manage those types of situations. I'm curious for you, one of the things that we do on the Speaker Lab show is the, uh, when we're talking with other speakers, we all have those horror stories. So, like, tell me a story of something that happened to you one time. Uh, it can't be worse than this. What's a time where... <laughs> Like it just went, like we all love the standing ovations, the applause, but you're right. You kind of touched on it here that that's not always the case. Thankfully, the longer you do it, the more the good stuff happens and the bad stuff. But we all still have those bad days where just you go back to your room and you're just borderline in tears or you're yeah. like, I'm it's supposed to be a 45 minute talk, but I want to cut it down to 10 and just get the heck out of here. So yeah. tell us about a time when uh, it can't be worse than this. Well, there's certainly a lot of things that come to mind. One of them I mentioned earlier where people started walking out of the room and it was in large part because I tried to do something that was risky, but I didn't prepare enough. Yeah. So I wasn't familiar enough with my material and I was pulling from my notes, which just wasn't working. It, it really didn't work at all. So that was one. And that felt horrible. And I, I wanted to actually, I probably did crawl up in a ball on the floor in my room and cry myself to sleep. But there was another time that actually worked out well. It started off pretty bad, and then it worked out well. I was giving a speech at the Harvard Club to CEOs and uh, presidents of companies that were 500 million plus, big, big companies. And I was speaking on Book Yourself Solid, and I was about three quarters in. It was going really well. And I was talking about networking, and I was suggesting, listen, I know you're busy, but one of the things you can do that really is very effective is introduce two people inside your network who don't know each other, but might find each other relevant. There might be some value in knowing each other. Do it each day. And share some information with another person each day that might be relevant to them. Not something you produce, but relevant to them. And then just share some compassion 
with a few people every day. So you're staying in touch with people around things that are personal to them rather than just contacting them every time you want to sell something or need a favor, something like that. Sounds pretty reasonable, right? Fair enough. So one guy at the back of the room goes, yeah, I tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's like, okay. You love that guy. Yeah, I love that guy. Now, I had to process information very quickly because that's one of the things that you need to get good at as a speaker is to process information quickly and act on it. Yeah. So in a way, one of the things that you get good at is being able to observe the room and yourself while you're performing. It's a high level skill, but it is something you can do. I can actually see myself performing and hear myself while I'm performing. So I can be thinking about other things and performing at the same time. Right. And I had to make an evaluation. I had to decide, is he a member of this group or is he a guest of a member? Because the members bring guests and I need to handle him differently. If he's a member, well, that means that the other members know who he is and know his personality. So is he somebody they like or is he somebody they, they don't really like? And does he have a high standing in the group or not? But if he's a guest, is he a guest of a very important member or is he not? And if he is a guest, how are the other members going to feel about him speaking up that way? Right. So I made the quick determination that he was a guest because I could not imagine a member doing that. I could have been wrong. Turned out I was right. I just made the guess that he was a member. And the fact that he was, a, that, excuse me, I, I could have been wrong, but the fact that he was a guest, it gave me a little bit of freedom. So what I did was I decided to let him dig himself a hole. So I said, okay, give me an example of when you tried that and it didn't work. Right. He's like, yeah, well, I tried that and I was call, you know, I called up this guy, you know, I've been trying to do business with him for months. I've been calling him for months and months and months. So I said, well, let me try to see if I can share some information with him. So I called him up and, you know, he was in his car and I was like, hey, listen, I've got this uh, idea for you that I think would be really good. And the guy said, well, I'm in my car right now, so I can't really talk about it. Can you just send me an email? He's like, see, it didn't work. And of course, the whole room was listening, going, this guy is an idiot. Like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, obviously he was stalking this guy and the guy didn't want to talk to him. Then the, my next thought was, oh, see, he's, I get his person. I get what's going on here. Before I had to do anything else, the president of the group, and there were about maybe 150 people in the room, stood up and said, shut up. Not to me, but to him. Wow. And the rest of the room applauded. And then I carried on. <laughs> because sometimes the group will come to your aid. Yep. Now, if I started getting defensive with that guy, you know, I would have looked weak. I would have looked insecure and not very confident. But because I said, well, tell me about an example when you tried it. It looked like I had, it didn't phase me at all. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, says that when he gets a heckler, he often says to them, you seem angry. What's wrong? <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> and I think that the no, comedians do a great, great job of dealing with that. Yeah. And so even though you may not have the 
hostility of a heckler in a bar who's intoxicated, you still have these people that may speak up. And I think that's a great point, too. Of, and you touched on this a little bit and steal the show, the book, is that the amount of almost improv that's involved with speaking is that, yeah, I've got in my mind that kind of set list of where I'm going, but I'm also making a lot of little adjustments on the fly that, okay, I told this joke, and if that didn't work, then that joke I'm going to tell in 30 minutes is definitely not going to work. <laughs> or if this did work, then I can probably expand on this a little further yeah. and keep going there. And so a lot of that, you're exactly, you're making those adjustments, you're reading that on the fly and adjusting to the audience, adjusting to the environment, adjusting to the setting, adjusting to the client. Mm-hmm. There's times where, you know, you and I have been booked to speak. Hey, you're, we hired you to come stock for 60 minutes. Uh, right before you're about to go up to say, hey, we're running late. Oh, yeah. You only have 35. All you got to make that adjustment. You yeah. can't go back to the client and say, hey, no, 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 I'm planning on 60. I need my full six. No, no, you're there to serve the client. So you got to make those adjustments. Yeah. You got to got to kind of uh, jive with it as you go. And don't make the assumption that because you're the first speaker, you'll have all of your time. Totally. You know, you usually think, well, if I'm the last, it may get pushed back and then I'm in trouble. But the first speaker, I was the first speaker at an event a couple months ago, and they started 15 minutes late. Then the MC, who was supposed to do a five-minute introduction, did a 15-minute introduction. Yeah. So I went from 60 minutes to 30 minutes and just had to make that adjustment on the fly. That's part of it. That's just your job. So, you know, you get better at these things as you do them. And I think I've made more mistakes than than even good choices, but uh, you just, you keep working, you keep working and, you know, you really just keep trying to get better every single day and the better prepared you are, the easier it is. One of the things that we've kind of touched on a little bit in terms of just the training and how you actually get better and in terms of a, as close to a real environment as possible is heroic public speaking. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Now, that's coming up in just a couple of weeks here. Yeah. Uh, going to be in Florida mid-February. So you, this is something that, this is the second year of doing it? Yeah, it's our second year of doing it. Last year, we had about 200 people. This year, expect about 250 people. And it's a three-day event. And of course, before the event is another pre-con day that you're leading. So if you come to the pre-con, it's four days. But the main event is three days. And on the first day of Heroic Public Speaking, we have multiple sessions running at the same time, but everybody goes to all the sessions. So you cycle through them throughout the day. And what we do is we bring in our teachers from graduate school. So I have an MFA from NYU in acting, and my partner, who's also my wife, has a master's in acting as well, an MFA in acting, from Yale, the Yale School of Drama. And we know that voice and speech and movement and improvisation are four of the performer's most important skills. Your body is an instrument. Your voice is an instrument. And the way you move and the way you speak, the way you breathe, and as we've been discussing, your ability to improvise will often determine the quality of your work. So we bring in a movement teacher from the NYU graduate acting program. Uh, We bring in my former improvisation teacher from the graduate acting program at NYU. We bring Amy's voice teacher from the Yale School of Drama. She's now the head of the acting and voice programs at uh, UC San Diego. And you go through all of those sessions on the first day. You work your voice, you work your movement, you learn how to move on stage, you learn improvisation techniques. And that's the first day. It's so powerful. You're up on your feet all day long, not just sitting uh, in chairs. You're up on your feet and you're working. 
We also, on that same day, run master classes that Amy and I teach where we put people on stage and we coach them and you get to see what that process is like and you learn so much about the technique of performance by watching people perform on stage. The second day, the second day, we have a whole track for on-camera training, rehearsing in front of the camera, performing in front of the camera, doing interviews in front of the camera, improvising in front of the camera, and a lot more. And you can choose to go to those sessions and or you can choose to go to the sessions on content development, story development, and telling, and more. So you see on that second day, for people who have done a lot of that content development work with us and the storytelling work with us, they may choose to go into some of the on-camera work. And for people who are newer to this material and they're newer in the world of speaking, they are better suited, I think, working on the content and the stories because if their content is not good, it doesn't really matter if they can perform on camera yet. And the third day I call the funny business of speaking. We do two different business panels with some of the top rated and highest earning speakers in the business, as well as meeting planners. And if you go to an, uh, an agents in the business, if you go to heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live, you'll see some of these speakers, you'll see them listed and they're going to be on panels and uh, you'll be able to ask questions of them as well. So that's a really keen it's really interesting to be able to get their keen insight on how they've built their businesses. And of course, also getting keen insight from an agent in the business who's the one who books the speakers. And so, uh, you know, that's an important perspective to get. And then we also do a whole session with Ron Tight, who is a brilliant comedian and one of the best speakers in the business. He was just uh, voted one of the top 15 speakers of 2015 by the Meeting Planners Association, which is kind of a big deal. And he's going to do a session on being funny, on using humor in speaking, which everybody will love. And then another masterclass and more. So it's a pretty full three days. And I guarantee it will be an event like you've never been to before. And I say that without any hyperbole, because most people have never done the kind of training that we got to do when we were in master's programs, in acting, in arguably two of the best schools in the country. And if you've never done this kind of skill development, rehearsal development, content development work, it's eye-opening, really mind-blowing experience. One of the things I like about it, though, is that it's more than just someone coming and sitting in like a, a stuffy lecture hall for three days and listening to, to different people drone on. But it's you're talking about like people are getting up, they're moving, they're actually being part of this. And other than just talking about some ideas and concepts and theories, let's get up on stage. Let's get in a room. Let's workshop this stuff. Let's actually work this stuff out. And that's really where you learn. Like it's, it's one thing if I'm teaching one of my daughters to ride a bike, it's one thing to have her read an article about riding a bike or to watch a YouTube video. But it's another thing to like, let's just get on the freaking bike and actually do this. Yeah. So I was like, that's really some of that hands-on practical training. Well, speak, speaking is something you do in person. So the training for speaking needs to be done in person as well. Very, very important. We do online courses also, but you got to get in there in the room uh, with the teachers as well. And then the other thing I would say is this, we do the entire event in the Broward County Center for the Performing Arts. So we're in rehearsal rooms and theaters rather than the hotel for the performance side of things. The pre-con we do in the hotel, so you can sit down and do the table work that you need to do for 
building the marketing plan for your business. And that's, of course, with Grant. So tell the audience a little bit about that day. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because uh, we've been we've got a lot of people that are already registered for it because the and I've been doing a lot of surveys and just talking with some of the people that have already registered and we've got a big mix of people. We got some people that are brand new that have spoken some but maybe never been paid. We've got other people that have been doing some speaking that have been getting paid that are trying to figure out how they can scale up their business and charge more, speak at more events. So we've got a wide mix of people here, but again, this is why I think this works really well is you're able to talk about the art side of it of delivering an amazing top-notch presentation, which works hand-in-hand with the marketing side of it and the business side of the speaking. But we're able to talk more about if you're an amazing speaker, but nobody knows you exist, it's hard to build a business that way. It's hard to build a, a living. So we'll talk a lot about establishing your answers to those three foundational questions we talked about earlier of why you want to speak, who you want to speak to, what you want to talk about. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about how do you actually find these events? You know, we kind of touched on some stuff, but we're going to talk about how you can find existing events, find some of those existing clients, how you build those relationships with them, how you connect with those decision makers, how you don't become that one guy that was in the room that was like you mentioned at the Harvard event where you're just, they're calling and calling and calling and just becoming that speaker that's just annoying and harassing people. But how do you view this as building these long-term relationships with people? You know, as a quick example, at the time of this recording, I'm speaking on Thursday at Iowa State University. It'll be the, I think the seventh or eighth time that I've spoke there in just the past couple of years. They bring in multiple times a year, every year, because I've, I've been really intentional about building relationships with them and not just going for these uh, one-off gigs or these one-night stands. So we're going to talk about that, of how you really build the business side of this. And then one of the other things I'm really looking forward to is we've got an afternoon panel, I think right after lunch, where we are going to be doing some Q&A with you and giving the audience a chance to ask some questions about how you've built your business, about how things have developed and grown for you, other things that they can be thinking through. You're several steps ahead of where we're at, where the audience is at. So just being able to pick your brain and learn from you in a, a casual type of setting yeah. and just getting some of that access to you that we really, you know, a lot of people may not be able to get otherwise. And so I think that'll be a highlight of the day as well. So yeah, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. And even more specific. Specifically, less probably about, you know, my journey, uh, but what I think specifically they can do uh, based on who they are and what they're speaking on. So uh, that's something that I don't think uh, people have a lot of uh, opportunity to do because generally I teach the performance side uh, rather than the business side. But in that particular pre-conference session with you, I will be answering those kind of questions about their businesses specifically, whereas in the main event, I don't teach the business side, even though we do the business panels, I'm not on those panels. Right, yeah. right. And then one last thing I'll say is please do not register if you are a critic or a cynic. I have a hard and fast rule. If you come to this event and you put anyone down, if you are critical in a nasty way of anyone or an unnecessary way, if you do not support people, you're gone. I just kick you out. <laughs> That's just it. Because if you want to do big things as a speaker, you got to take risks and you need people around you who support you. And you need to feel like you're in a safe space. And this is a safe space. And I'm not a very big guy, but I will stand up for you to anyone, anywhere and protect you. And that is, I think, part of of my job as the leader of this community, you know, when you are working on your performance. So please know that you're in a safe space and nobody will uh, put you down. And if they do, they'll have me to deal with. You know, and you're in an environment there where you, when you've created that type of environment, that's a very 
supportive, safe space. And you, it's one of those types of events you show up and you feel like, these are my people. Yeah. Like, where have these people been? And so I'm able to, to connect with all these other people that are just like me that are at all different stages. So I'm looking forward just to the relationship building, not only what happens in the session, but what happens uh, during the meals and during breaks and what the conversations that take place in the hall. I'll be hanging out there the whole time, not only during the pre-con, obviously, but the next three days. I'm looking forward to it myself. I'm looking forward to learning. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Cool. You're the best, man. So listen, this is uh, both Michael Port and Grant Baldwin signing off for our podcasts. Uh, Grant, is your podcast is called. Uh, for anybody that is been listening to my podcast and they also want to go listen to Grant's podcast, where can they find your podcast? Yeah, they can find everything over at thespeakerlab.com. Thespeakerlab.com. You can find the show notes for this episode, everything that, that Michael and I have talked about. And uh, Michael, where can we find out more about you? Stealtheshow.com. Stealtheshow.com is where you can find the podcast. If you want to find out more about the event, that's heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live. And if you just want to check out all the different things that uh, we've got going on, you can always go to michaelport.com, michaelport.com. Grant, you're the man. I know I've chosen the right person to lead this pre-con. I thank you for doing it, and I look forward to seeing you. Looking forward to hanging out in Florida, my friend. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get some sun on our bald, beautiful heads. It's going to be a great time. <laughs> That's right. I'll bring the sunscreen. We're going to need it. All right. Bye for now. All right. There you go, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that chit chat with uh, speaker, best-selling author, all-around good dude, Michael Port. Really enjoyed that conversation there. So yeah, again, I'm, if anything, after listening to that, I'm just I'm pumped about heroic public speaking. So that is coming up literally at the time of this recording in just a couple of weeks. So it's going to be February 15th through the 17th down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then uh, just to clarify, I'm going to be doing that pre-con day all about how to get booked and paid to speak on February the 14th. All right, so that's going to be on Sunday at the same hotel and conference center, and then the next day kicks off heroic public speaking. So come for all four days. We're going to have a blast. Again, you can get all the details and information over at grantbaldoncom slash HPS for heroic public speaking. Again, grantbaldoncom slash HPS. All right. Hey, one more quick reminder. We do have that podcast contest going on right now. You can get all the details on that over at podcastcontest.com. You're definitely going to want to check that out. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. Just so that you know, on Thursday's episode, we're going to be talking about the answering this question of what is it that you want to speak about, all right? So if you're someone who's just like, okay, I know I want to speak, but I have no idea what I want to speak about, then you're not going to want to miss the upcoming episode, episode eight. So be looking for that in just a couple of days. Next week, I've got interviews with two of my favorite speakers, so you're definitely going to want to check that out as well. That's why, listen, I'm telling you people, this is why you want to subscribe to the podcast. You don't want to miss out on, uh, on what we're going to be doing. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing an interview with, uh, sharing an interview with the president of the National Speakers Association, as well as answering some of your questions. Uh, one of the questions we talk about is how can we use social media to find speaking engagement? So definitely, uh, you're going to want to be on the lookout for that one as well, coming to you in a couple of weeks. All right, my friends, that uh, wraps up today's episode. If you need anything, give me a shout. Catch you on the other side, my friend. You're awesome.